Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. I'm your host, Matt Norden, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, welcome back. Thank you, Maddie. Well, well spent week last week. It was awesome. My nephew is so freaking fun. He's so cool. Um, I had a great time. It was awesome. First family vacation as Uncle Nicky. We love to hear it. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. And I quick shout out because today is straight up yep. birthdays. Dan and Pat, boys, happy birthday. Hope you have a great day. Uh, hope you just live it up this weekend and just enjoy it. Beat me to it. Yeah, Dan, big time friend of the program. Uh, Dan Walsh, Vela Alta founder and uh, lead sponsor of the planet today. Also just a great friend of ours who has helped co-host the show a bunch of times. And Pat, you guys probably don't know Pat. Um, that's okay. We'll keep it. At, we'll keep it at that for, for yeah. Pat. <laughs> that's that's all you need to know is that you don't know him and you're lucky. No, I'm kidding. Pat's great. Happy birthday to two of our dearest, dearest friends. And with that, let's get right into the show. quick hits for the week. So just a heads up, the first two are very unfortunate updates and we'd encourage anyone who's able to to consider donating to the relief efforts uh, for them. The first one is by Caitlin O'Kane of CBS News who writes 850 people are still missing after Maui wildfires. Yeah, so as of Monday night this week, 114 people have been confirmed dead and 850 people were still listed as missing as a result of the wildfire that hit Maui in the beginning of the month. 1,285 individuals had been found safe from the original missing persons list, so hopefully that number continues to increase. This is already the deadliest wildfire in modern United States history, and some Hawaiians even had to run into the ocean to escape the blaze. The fires had a unique atmospheric situation that caused them to spread as fast as they did. When air flows toward a mountain, it works its way up and over, then gets forced downward due to the stable atmospheric layer on the opposite side. From there, the air descends and picks up speed. While descending, it also increases in air pressure. This increased pressure causes the air to then warm. So these strong, warm, and dry winds cause a greater risk for fast-moving fires, which is exactly what was experienced in Maui. Yeah, I mean, just terrible news. There's not really much that you and I can add here from environmental perspective that we haven't already covered whenever we talk about wildfires you know we're we're concerned about the people there we're concerned about the local ecosystems we're concerned about basically everything that surrounds the the economic fallout from this you know those ecosystems that have been impacted are going to provide less ecosystem services now because there's less ecosystem to work with in certain areas you know entire areas are destroyed um there's going to be a hit to Hawaii's tourism industry. And all of that is is important, but not nearly as important as the loss of life, both human, animal, plant. You know, this is this is devastating. Yeah. No, absolutely. I don't have too much to add either. I think we, we went through it last week as well. It's it's really rough. Um 
and check your show notes. Give what you can. That's all, that's all I can say. And keep the families just in your uh, in your hearts. Yeah, I, I think the the hard part is whenever we talk about wildfires in the summer, you know, it's it's almost like wildfire fatigue, where we hear these stories and you know, then a couple of weeks later, there's another bad wildfire or a series of wildfires. And I don't want to normalize this, right? Like the, every single time this happens, it's a tragedy. And I, I don't think we're being exaggerate. Like, I don't think we're exaggerating when we say that every single time this happens, it's genuinely, genuinely awful. Yeah. No question. And you know, like this story, like we're covering this because it's Hawaii and you know, Hawaii is, is America. We are two Americans hosting this show. We have a mostly American audience. So that's our focus, but mm-hmm. these types of wires, wildfires are happening all across the world. You know, this comes at a time when the Yellowknife fires in Canada's Northwest territories have caused over 20,000 people to evacuate the Northwest ter- territories capital. There's, I have the data here. There's been 5,790 fires in Canada this year, including 200 that are ongoing in the Northwest Territories and 400 that are ongoing in British Columbia. So this isn't just happening in Maui. This isn't just happening in the American West. This is our neighbors to the North. This is also across the Atlantic Ocean in Greece, where on Tuesday there were wildfires in the northeastern border of the country that resulted in 18 bodies being recovered from the fire fallout. So again, I don't want to normalize this. I don't want this to be something that, you know, we just hear about wildfires and assume like, Oh, there's going to be a lot of casualties. There's going to be a lot of damage done. Yeah. Every single time this happens, it's awful. And every single person lost is a friend is a family member, you know, like it's just, it's genuinely devastating. And, unfortunately becoming more and more prevalent with climate change, making a lot of, a lot more areas drier, hotter. It it just essentially becomes Tinder for wildfires to pick up and spread. This is where climate change adaptation really comes into play because we're not going to be able to mitigate climate change to a point that wildfires stop happening at this increased risk. And, you know, like not all wildfires are, are bad. And that's something that we haven't really talked about today. Some are natural, some are what the ecosystem needs, but those can be controlled. What we're talking about here is these out-of-control wildfires that they're not going anywhere right now. They're not going to go away anytime soon, and we just need to be able to better adapt to it, plan for it, and make sure that the damage caused is less than it could be. Absolutely. All right, our next story is by CNN's Monica Garrett, and it's titled, Hillary Downgraded to Post-Tropical Cyclone but 25 million still under flood warnings. So this is the first tropical storm warning in Southern California that was issued by the National Hurricane Center before tropical storm Hillary made landfall on Sunday evening. It was originally Hurricane Hillary and then was downgraded from a hurricane just hours prior to making that landfall. Um, It was then downgraded again to a post-tropical cyclone by Monday morning. California Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency ahead of the storm, which threatened catastrophic and life-threatening floods. Southern California and the Baja California Peninsula in Mexico, where Hillary first made landfall, experienced tremendous amounts of rainfall. This storm caused the U.S. Navy to move ships out of San Diego Bay, while others had to remain out to sea until Hillary passed over the region. 
California State Parks closed all beaches in San Diego and Orange County on Sunday, and the National Park Service closed Joshua Tree, and the city of San Diego closed all city beaches and public buildings. So by Tuesday, all coastal tropical storm warnings had been discontinued. Flood watches, on the other hand, did remain in place for over 25 million people from Southern California all the way up to Northern Idaho. CNN's Monica Garrett said on Monday that across the southwestern U.S., the ongoing and historic amounts of rainfall is expected to cause life-threatening and locally catastrophic flash, urban, and arroyo flooding, including landslides, mudslides, and debris flows. So for anyone who hasn't heard of any of those terms, I just want to quickly look up, um, I mean, flash flooding, we know of urban flooding is, is cities that are flooding. Arroyo flooding is when a small watercourse, you know, a very small ravine or a dry swale then gets filled up with this flood water and dissipates all out into that local ecosystem surrounding that smaller watercourse, sometimes called a gulch. Um, it's it's all around just genuinely tough for really every ecosystem involved, especially when you consider California is not equipped to handle all of this water at once. Yeah, no question. I was watching a video, I think on CNN from Forest Falls, uh, California, which is like in San, Bernard- San Bernardino County, and just watching literally like these rocks just completely running like imagine a river literally just mm-hmm. rocks running like a river that fast um was completely just like holy hell that this could even happen um and just scary that this is just the beginning for california too i mean like i i just don't know where we're going to be at in in five ten years yeah uh, in california i feel so bad for the people that live there um but yeah just just a really really rough story and i uh hope everyone's staying safe. Yeah. And the thing that's also worth pointing out, I, I totally agree with everything you said there. You know, it's, it's jarring. I am hoping that everyone there is, is safe and able to hopefully recover quickly from this. You know, I, I think the urban flooding especially can be particularly damaging because you have entire neighborhoods that are just clusters of peoples and stores just completely devastated in, in certain areas. So yeah. Not to say that rural rural flooding is is better because it's not. I'm just thinking on like a number of people impacted. You know, the urban flooding makes me a bit more nervous. Um, yeah, and this is just it's it's something that's so scary and alarming because I've seen a bunch of meteorologists and and other environmental scientists just saying that this likely would not have happened or would not have been as bad if not for climate change and you know, you think of hurricanes hitting the U.S., you think of Southeast, you know, your Florida, your Louisiana, your Mississippi, your Carolinas. Every so often you get a hurricane that sneaks up to the northern, eastern part of the U.S. But, I mean, you don't think of California. You don't think of the West Coast. Like This is so jarring to me. Yeah, definitely. Definitely an eye-opener. All right, let's move on to a little bit more happier news. We have this week's environmental policy roundup. A group of young environmentalists in Montana sued the state for violating their constitutional right to clean and healthy environment by allowing fossil fuel development. This is the first case of its kind, 
And if you paid attention a couple of weeks ago, two maybe months ago, Nick and I talked about this on the show, but we recently had a ruling from a Montana judge who actually ruled in favor of the environmentalists. If that ruling stands, this could provide, in my opinion, a wonderful precedent for safeguarding our environment locally. The Department of Commerce has determined that solar panel manufacturers are evading U.S. trade rules by not paying tariffs. The ruling means that in order to be exempt from U.S. duties, all solar providers in Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, and Cambodia must self-certify that they are complying with all trade rules. This ruling impacts nearly 75% of solar panels that are imported for use in the United States, which could increase the cost of solar projects beginning in June of 2024. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely concerning, especially when you consider like we need to decarbonize and we need to decarbonize yesterday. So to see that 75% of the solar panels that we use in the U.S. could increase in price, that's going to be something that we really need to figure out. Because for a lot of people, solar energy is cost prohibitive. And that's where the federal incentives from the IRA come into play. That's where state incentives come into play. Like I'm in New York, we have... IRA funding, then we have NY Sun, which is through the state agencies. Then you have some local utilities that are offering offsets or tax rebates through, like, if you have solar on the roof. So, you know, there's all of these incentives in place to say, let's get this type of energy on par with oil, with gas with all of those things that have been incentivized for years and years and years. Yeah. And it would suck to kind of have that slip away because of this ruling. So my hope is that, you know, domestically we can get costs down, whether that comes in the form of new R&D that's going to lead to cheaper panels that have a better output or in the form of more government incentives. You know, we are fortunate that right now the man in the White House seems to be pretty on board with this green energy revolution. So let's see what you could do here, Joey. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Like you said, I mean, you need to keep the price of solar competitive, you know, or other or people are going to or private investment, I should say, will move towards other um, areas of renewable energy. And if it's not and if it's not competitive, it's just it's it's not going to be chosen as as often as, you know, some of the other options. And especially at a time now where we just need it. We just need as much solar energy as we can get. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's um it's, it's tough because a lot of people who aren't in the know on how energy works, they're like, oh, well, why would we incentivize solar? Like, why don't we just re- like remove all the subsidies and then have it be the true cost? That's yeah. fine if we want to do it that way under one circumstance. We also have to do that for gas. We also have to do that for oil. And that's when people realize just how much we've been subsidizing the oil and gas industry for you know, a century. And it's not just the U S like worldwide subsidies for gas and oil are through the roof. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that we absolutely need to subsidize things to make them worth it. But if we're going to subsidize one, we need to subsidize both. Yeah, definitely. All right. I'm not an economist. Don't listen to me on any of this. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we got two more stories for you.
Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, study warns of link between air pollution, antibiotic-resistant pathogens by Kelsey Abels of the Washington Post. So as air pollution gets worse, a new study is suggesting that the increased resistance to antibiotics might be linked to that air pollution. Abels writes, researchers from the Zhejiang University and the University of Cambridge have found, quote, significant correlations between worldwide air pollutants known as PM 2.5, which are tiny particles of solids or liquids in the air, like dust, dirt, and soot, and antibiotic resistance. This link also suggests that drug-resistant diseases could become more prevalent. The authors of the study estimate that antibiotic resistance caused by air pollution resulted in roughly 480,000 premature deaths in 2018. If this is not addressed in the future, that death toll could rise by 56.4 percent by 2050. So Abels also points out that bad air quality from wildfires sparked concerns about the health consequences of air pollution recently. And with wildfires occurring more often due to climate change, this is unfortunately not going to go away on its own. That part I really want to highlight, and it's because I I don't really know how to describe this, so bear with me for a second. Like, this obviously isn't good news, but I think this is really good reporting. And I think this is a really good study for long-term health because we can't enforce things without data to back it up. So I'm not happy to hear, you know, air pollution is linked to antibiotic drug resistance. That's not good. But the fact that there's now studies showing this means that we now are going to have the tools to handle it and, you know, implement new policies that are aimed at addressing air pollution. And when you think about how air pollution, it's one of those things that's just really inequitable. Yeah. There are so many cases where we've seen air pollution impact lower income communities, communities of color, a lot more than, you know, rich white communities. And a lot of that has to do with urban planning all throughout the U.S., A lot of that has to do with redlining. A lot of that has to do with where we chose to put in power plants and who was living there at the time, where we chose to put in manufacturing plants and who was living there at the time. It's all kind of systemic. And to fix a systemic problem, you need a systematic approach. And I think this study showing, hey, you might not care much about air pollution and you might not care much about climate change. And hell, you might not even care much about antibiotic drug resistance. But what you do care about is the fact that 480,000 premature deaths occurred because of antibiotic resistance caused by air pollution in 2018. And if that number isn't enough to 
make you want to do something about it as a, a local state federal politician, that number is going to go up by over 50 percent over the next 25 years. And what are we getting into public service? What are we running for public office for, if not to get a number like that down? Yeah. And the scary thing about this is this, too, is like air pollution is one of those things that's just kind of out of our control. Like we just straight up wildfires can can create this, you know, dirt, dust, soot in the air. And I think this story kind of ties into almost what we were talking about with um, our, our wildfire story in the beginning. Yeah. But the, the really scary thing about this is is the antibiotic resistance, because if we don't have that, it's it's like so many different things you just need to take antibiotics for and you just like there's there's just no way, other way around it. And we haven't really found anything that's like also, you know, could have that same kind of um, use as as antibiotics. So completely concerning uh, and uh, something we should, like you said, great reporting. At least the story's out there. More people are going to be more aware of it. Maybe more scientists can study it and more people can uh, figure out a solution. Yeah. And I think something that you said that I, I, I think was really, really important to bring up is that we can't really control air pollution in certain aspects, you know, wildfires that get out of control. If we could control it, they wouldn't get out of control. Yeah. So we need to control air pollution where we can. And where can we do that? Manufacturing plants, cars. Yes. You know, there's so many different sectors of the economy where we can say, look, we need to electrify these cars because smog on the road is impacting our air pollution near certain towns, certain parts of the city. You know, highways running through these, this neighborhood is showing that the kids that live here get asthma at a higher rate than the kids who live on the other side of the city where there's no highway. So yeah. control what we can control because the uncontrollables will will not matter less at that point, but they're going to be less significant in terms of how much they impact our health, right? They're going to be a bad blip in the radar as opposed to, oh my God, this is the thing that sets us over the top for the next year and a half. So why is air pollution important? Among other things, it's linked to cancer, respiratory illnesses, cardiovascular disease, and even dementia and depression. So look, you don't have to care about climate change to care about removing air pollution because this is absolutely a public health crisis when out of control. Absolutely. All right. Our last quick hit of the week is from the New York Times where David Gels, Brad Plumer, Jim Tankersley, and Jack Ewing write, the clean energy future is arriving faster than you think. So first off, this is a huge compilation article, and I thought it's a really fascinating read. If you want to dive into it a bit more, it's always in your show notes. Nick and I are just going to pretty much go into the highlights here, but there is so much more that goes into specific cities and specific things that is that are going on. Um, I don't think anything in here was like groundbreaking new information where you're going to be like, I have never heard of, of this update in this part of the clean energy revolution. But whether this is going to bring up some newer topics or just reinforce things that you're already familiar with, I think this is a really, really great article with really good reporting. Across the country, we're seeing municipal buildings, delivery vans, buses, and heavy equipment starting to get powered by electricity that's coming more and more from the sun and from wind. The U.S. is now catching up to the energy transition that's already begun in Europe, and even the global transitioning is happening at a faster rate than anticipated, which is awesome, awesome news. 
Renewable energies are now expected to pass coal by 2025 to become the largest source of electricity in the world. While governments encourage transitioning to electric vehicles, automakers are talking about sunsetting their internal combustion engine vehicles. Governments are investing trillions of dollars around the world into decarbonizing society, and it comes at a time where we're seeing the impacts of climate change on a daily basis. Yeah, and I think that's that's the key, right? For for years, we heard that same thing. Oh, this isn't my problem. This is my great-grandkids' problem. Why yeah. am I going to care when I'm not even going to be here? Look, people who are still making that argument, you're wrong. Um, yeah. I don't know if we want to get into this too much, but even the there was a little debate last, last night. Last night yeah. <laughs> Jesus oh Christmas, gosh, Rivek Ramaswamy. I was like, everything that came guy. out of his mouth, I just wanted to like literally just completely unprovoked. He's just like, climate change is a hoax, and I was yeah. like, why do I? Why do I watch television? It's um, unbelievable. Yeah, just infuriating. So, look, you can make that argument. But you're wrong. And I saw like even NPR, who is super unbiased, just calls it as it is. They did fact checking from the debate last night. Nick and I are recording on Thursday if you didn't deduce that from this. But um, they did some fact checking and they had his quote about climate change being a hoax. And all they wrote was, this is false. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. Very basic. Yep. Just false. Yeah. And the thing is, like. Maybe if you're rich enough, you're not seeing climate change on a daily basis because what's he going to do when, you know, climate change is at his doorstep, sell his home and get a, a penthouse apartment somewhere where flooding exactly. is never going to impact. Doesn't it. matter. But for everyone else, you know, for the 99 percent of the world that is not a billionaire trying to become president, we are seeing climate change on a daily basis. You know, we're seeing wildfires, we're seeing flooding, we're seeing more increased storms that are more devastating every time they hit. So we are living this on a day to day. Like it's something you can't turn away from anymore. So yeah, that's why governments are spending so much money into decarbonizing because we should have done it 10 years ago. We should have done it 20 years ago. We didn't. Some countries were better than others, but like we are still way too reliant on fossil fuels. And now is the time where we spend that money to, to bridge that gap that we should have bridged a long time ago. So one of the really encouraging trends that we found in this article is that the cost of generating electricity from solar and wind is in many places cheaper than gas, cheaper than oil, and cheaper than coal. And that's part of why this year is expected to see more than $1.7 trillion of global investment in renewables, which to compare that to the global investment in fossil fuels, it's about $700 billion more. Now, you can argue that $1 trillion in fossil fuel investments in 2023 is still far too much. And in fact, I will argue that $1 trillion in fossil fuel investments this year is still far too much. Mm -hmm. We're still seeing more coal mines being built. We're still seeing more pipelines being permitted in the U.S. and abroad. We are still seeing record profits from an oil and gas industry that is now not keeping its promises to invest more into renewable energy. So all of that investment, it's much too much. But I'm greatly encouraged by the the fact that $1.7 trillion of investment is going into renewables, which is, you know, three, 1.75 times as much investment. You know, we're talking about three quarters more investment in renewables than into fossil fuels. 
Yeah, it is super, super promising. So one of the main roadblocks for decarbonizing is our existing infrastructure, which either needs to be upgraded or retrofitted to accommodate more renewables and less fossil fuels. Another is that some politicians in the U.S. believe the country should continue to use fossil fuels or even increase fossil fuel usage. Luckily, the economy is trending towards a renewable future and economic growth tends to outweigh politics in the U.S., About two-thirds of the new investment in clean energy is in Republican-controlled states, where policymakers have historically resisted renewables. So what we're seeing here is an overwhelming public support for decarbonization, political support from left-leaning politicians, and economic support from some of those right-leaning politicians, which all creates this intersection of an increase in renewable energy. And to me, that's one of those, I don't really care how you figure out the answer as long as you get it right sort of things where, Mm -hmm. look, you might not be into environmental causes the way that me and Nick are. And you might be more into making money and whether you are supporting solar and wind and geothermal and electric vehicles and battery storage because you want a livable planet or because you want to make money kind of fine with it either way because you are supporting the right cause and you're getting us closer to a carbon-free society. Yeah, that's the point we had to get to, right? We had to get to the point where it was more in the investor's interest to go for renewables. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we are like basically there at this point is certainly promising. It's got to be something that you're you're going home uh, from work on Friday right now and you're like, wow. I can hang my hat on that. We're looking we're yeah. looking up, you know, the, the, at least if it affects a person's wallet, they're more likely to do X, Y, and Z because of that. Yeah. So this is this is great. Yeah. And this is something where it's good for investors. It's good for job creators. It's good for people who are looking for jobs. This is just good news to end your Friday or start your Friday if you're listening to us in the morning. <laughs> but that'll do it for today's episode. And Nick and I will be back next week for another episode. Until then, go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. And while you're at it, go follow Vala Alta. Go check out, if you skip the ad read for whatever reason, uh, go check out the Vala Alta website. That's valaalta.co. It's Dan's birthday. Go buy a handkerchief, use our discount code, and tell him TPT sent <laughs> Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout it. Nick, where can people bump your tunes all weekend long? You can bump it at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Summer might be almost over, but it's not too late to have a Bud Cape summer. Our logo <laughs> was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everybody, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace!